Chapter Eight, Part One of the Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Child. From the first, the baby stirred in the young father a deep, strong emotion he dared scarcely acknowledge. It was so strong and came out of the dark of him. When he heard the child cry, a terror possessed him, because of the answering echo from the unfathomed distances in himself. Must he know in himself such distances, perilous and imminent? He had the infant in his arms. He walked backwards and forwards, troubled by the crying of his own flesh and blood. This was his own flesh and blood crying. His soul rose against the voice suddenly breaking out from him, from the distances in him. Sometimes in the night the child cried and cried, when the night was heavy and sleep oppressed him, and half asleep he stretched out his hand to put it over the baby's face to stop the crying. But something arrested his hand, the very inhumanness of the intolerable, continuous crying arrested him. It was so impersonal, without cause or object, yet he echoed to it directly, his soul answered its madness, it filled him with terror almost with frenzy. He learned to acquiesce to this, to submit to the awful, obliterated sources which were the origin of his living tissue. He was not what he had conceived himself to be. Then he was what he was, unknown, potent, dark. He became accustomed to the child, he knew how to lift and balance the little body. The baby had a beautiful, rounded head that moved him passionately. He would have fought to the last drop to defend that exquisite, perfect round head. He learned to know the little hands and feet, the strange unseeing golden brown eyes, the mouth that opened only to cry, or to suck, or to show a queer toothless laugh. He could almost understand even the dangling legs, which at first had created in him a feeling of aversion. They could kick in their queer little way, they had their own softness. One evening, suddenly, he saw the tiny living thing rolling naked in the mother's lap, and he was sick. It was so utterly helpless and vulnerable and extraneous. In a world of hard surfaces and varying altitudes, it lay vulnerable and naked at every point. Yet it was quite blithe. And yet, in its blind, awful crying, was there not the blind, far-off terror of its own vulnerable nakedness, the terror of being so utterly delivered over? helpless at every point. He could not bear to hear it crying. His heart strained and stood on guard against the whole universe. But he waited for the dread of these days to pass. He saw the joy coming. He saw the lovely, creamy, cool little ear of the baby, a bit of dark hair rubbed to a bronze floss, like bronze dust. And he waited for the child to become his, to look at him and answer him. It had a separate being, but it was his own child. His flesh and blood vibrated to it. He caught the baby to his breast with his passionate, clapping laugh, and the infant knew him. As the newly opened, newly dawned eyes looked at him, he wanted them to perceive him, to recognise him. Then he was verified. The child knew him. A queer contortion of laughter came on its face for him. He caught it to his breast, clapping with a triumphant laugh. The golden-brown eyes of the child gradually lit up and dilated at the sight of the dark glowing face of the youth. It knew its mother better, it wanted its mother more, but the brightest, sharpest little ecstasy was for the father. 
It began to be strong, to move vigorously and freely, to make sounds like words. It was a baby girl now. Already it knew his strong hands. It exulted in his strong clasp. It laughed and crowed when he played with it. And his heart grew red, hot with passionate feeling for the child. She was not much more than a year old when the second baby was born. Then he took Ursula for his own. She was his first little girl. He had set his heart on her. The second had dark blue eyes and a fair skin. It was more a Brangwen, people said. The hair was fair. But they forgot Anna's stiff, blonde fleece of childhood. They called the newcomer Gudrun. This time Anna was stronger and not so eager. She did not mind that the baby was not a boy. It was enough that she had milk and could suckle her child. Oh, oh, the bliss of the little life, sucking the milk of her body! Oh, 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 the bliss, as the infant grew stronger, of the two tiny hands clutching, catching blindly yet passionately at her breast, of the tiny mouth seeking her in blind, sure, vital knowledge of the sudden consummate peace, as the little body sank, the mouth and throat sucking, 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 drinking life from her to make a new life, almost sobbing with passionate joy of receiving its own existence, the tiny hands clutching frantically as the nipple was drawn back, not to be gainsaid. This was enough for Anna. She seemed to pass off into a kind of rapture of motherhood. Her rapture of motherhood was everything. So that the father had the elder baby, the weaned child, the golden-brown, wondering, vivid eyes of the little Ursula were for him, who had waited behind the mother till the need was for him. The mother felt a sharp stab of jealousy, but she was still more absorbed in the tiny baby. It was entirely hers, its need was direct upon her. So Ursula became the child of her father's heart. She was the little blossom, he was the son. He was patient, energetic, inventive for her, he taught her all the funny little things. He filled her and roused her to the fullest tiny measure. She answered him with her extravagant infant's laughter and her call of delight. Now there were two babies, a woman came in to do the housework. Anna was wholly nurse. Two babies were not too much for her, but she hated any form of work now her children had come, except the charge of them. When Ursula toddled about, she was an absorbed, busy child, always amusing herself needing not much attention from other people. At evening, towards six o'clock, Anna very often went across the lane to the stile, lifted Ursula over into the field, with a, "'Go and meet Daddy!' Then Brangwen, coming up the steep round of the hill, would see before him on the brow of the path a tiny, tottering, wind-blown little mite with a dark head, who, as soon as she saw him, would come running in tiny, wild, windmill fashion lifting her arms up and down to him, down the steep hill. His heart leapt up. He ran his fastest to her, to catch her, because he knew she would fall. She came fluttering on, wildly, with her little limbs flying, and he was glad when he caught her up in his arms. Once she fell as she came flying to him. He saw her pitch forward suddenly as she was running with her hands lifted to him, and when he picked her up, her mouth was bleeding. He could never bear to think of it. He always wanted to cry, even when he was an old man and she had become a stranger to him. How he loved that little Ursula! His heart had been sharply seared for her when he was a youth first married. 
When she was a little older, he would see her recklessly climbing over the bars of the stile, in her red pinafore, swinging in peril and tumbling over, picking herself up and flitting towards him. Sometimes she liked to ride on his shoulder, sometimes she preferred to walk with his hand, sometimes she would fling her arms round his legs for a moment, then race free again, whilst he went shouting and calling to her, a child along with her. He was still only a tall, thin, unsettled lad of twenty-two. It was he who had made her her cradle, her little chair, her little stool, her high chair. It was he who would swing her up to the table, or who would make for her a doll out of an old table-leg, whilst she watched him, saying, "'Make her eyes, Daddy, make her eyes!' And he made her eyes with his knife. She was very fond of adorning herself, so he would tie a piece of cotton round her ear, and hang a blue bead on it underneath for an earring. The earrings varied with a red bead, and a golden bead, and a little pearl bead, and as he came home at night, seeing her bridling, and looking very self-conscious, he took notice, and said, "'So you're wearing your best golden and pearl earrings to-day?' "'Yes. I suppose you've been to see the Queen?' "'Yes, I have.' "'Oh, and what did she have to say?' "'She said, she said, you won't dirty your nice white frock.' He gave her the nicest bits from his plate, putting them into her red, moist mouth, and he would make on a piece of bread and butter a bird out of jam, which she ate with extraordinary relish. After the tea-things were washed up, the woman went away, leaving the family free. Usually Brangwen helped in the bathing of the children. He held long discussions with his child as she sat on his knee and he unfastened her clothes, and he seemed to be talking really of momentous things deep moralities. Then suddenly she ceased to hear, having caught sight of a glassy rolled into a corner. She slipped away, and was in no hurry to return. "'Come back here,' he said, waiting. She became absorbed, taking no notice. "'Come on,' he repeated, with a touch of command. An excited little chuckle came from her, but she pretended to be absorbed. "'Do you hear, me lady?' She turned with a fleeting, exulting laugh. He rushed on her, and swept her up. "'Who was it that didn't come?' he said, rolling her between his strong hands, tickling her, and she laughed heartily, heartily. She loved him that he compelled her with his strength and decision. He was all-powerful, the tower of strength which rose out of her sight. When the children were in bed, sometimes Anna and he sat and talked, desultorily, both of them idle. He read very little. Anything he was drawn to read became a burning reality to him, another scene outside his window, whereas Anna skimmed through a book to see what happened, then she had enough. Therefore they would often sit together, talking desultorily. What was really between them they could not utter. Their words were only accidents in the mutual silence. When they talked they gossiped. She did not care for sewing. She had a beautiful way of sitting musing, gratefully, as if her heart were lit up, Sometimes she would turn to him, laughing, to tell him some little thing that had happened during the day. Then he would laugh. They would talk a while, before the vital, physical silence was between them again. She was thin, but full of colour and life. She was perfectly happy to do just nothing, only to sit with a curious, languid dignity, so careless as to be almost regal, so utterly indifferent, so confident. The bond between them was undefinable, but very strong. It kept everyone else at a distance. 
His face never changed whilst she knew him. It only became more intense. It was ruddy and dark in its abstraction, not very human. It had a strong, intent brightness. Sometimes when his eyes met hers, a yellow flash from them caused a darkness to swoon over her consciousness, electric, and a slight strange laugh came on his face. Her eyes would turn languidly, then close as if hypnotised, and they lapsed into the same potent darkness. He had the quality of a young black cat, intent, unnoticeable, and yet his presence gradually made itself felt, stealthily and powerfully took hold of her. He called not to her, but to something in her, which responded subtly, out of her unconscious darkness. So they were together in a darkness, passionate, electric, forever haunting the back of the common day, never in the light. In the light he seemed to sleep, unknowing. Only she knew him when the darkness set him free, and he could see with his gold-glowing eyes his intention and his desires in the dark. Then she was in a spell. Then she answered his harsh, penetrating call with a soft leap of her soul. The darkness woke up, electric, bristling with an unknown, overwhelming insinuation. By now they knew each other. She was the daytime, the daylight. He was the shadow, put aside, but in the darkness potent with an overwhelming voluptuousness. She learned not to dread and to hate him, but to fill herself with him, to give herself to his black, sensual power that was hidden all the daytime, and the curious rolling of the eyes, as if she were lapsing in a trance away from her ordinary consciousness, became habitual with her, when something threatened and opposed her in life, the conscious life. So they remained as separate in the light and in the thick darkness married. He supported her daytime authority, kept it inviolable at least, and she, in all the darkness, belonged to him to his close, insinuating, hypnotic familiarity. All his daytime activity, all his public life was a kind of sleep. She wanted to be free, to belong to the day, and he ran avoiding the day in work. After tea he went to the shed to his carpentry or his wood-carving. He was restoring the patched, degraded pulpit to its original form. But he loved to have the child near him, playing by his feet. She was a piece of light that really belonged to him, that played within his darkness. He left the shed door on the latch, and when, with his second sense of another presence, he knew she was coming, he was satisfied, he was at rest. When he was alone with her, he did not want to take notice, to talk. He wanted to live unthinking, with her presence flickering upon him. He always went in silence. The child would push open the shed door and see him working by lamplight, his sleeves rolled back, his clothes hung about him carelessly, like mere wrapping. Inside his body was concentrated with a flexible, charged power all of its own, isolated. From when she was a tiny child Ursula could remember his forearm, with its fine black hairs and its electric flexibility, working at the bench through swift, unnoticeable movements always ambushed in a sort of silence. She hung a moment in the door of the shed, waiting for him to notice her. He turned, his black, curved eyebrows arching slightly. "'Hullo, Twitter, miss!' And he closed the door behind her. Then the child was happy in the shed that smelled of sweet wood and resounded to the noise of the plane, or the hammer, or the saw, yet was charged with the silence of the worker. 
she played on, intent and absorbed, among the shavings and the little nogs of wood. She never touched him, his feet and legs were near, she did not approach them. She liked to flit out after him when he was going to church at night. If he were going to be alone, he swung her over the wall, and let her come. Again she was transported, when the door was shut behind them, and they too inherited the big, pale, void place. She would watch him as he lit the organ candles, wait whilst he began practising his tunes. Then she ran, foraging here and there, like a kitten, playing by herself in the darkness, with eyes dilated. The ropes hung vaguely, twining on the floor, from the bells in the tower, and Ursula always wanted the fluffy red-and-white or blue-and-white rope grips, but they were above her. Sometimes her mother came to claim her. Then the child was seized with resentment. She passionately resented her mother's superficial authority. She wanted to assert her own detachment. He, however, also gave her occasional cruel shocks. He let her play about in the church. She rifled footstools and hymn-books and cushions like a bee among flowers, whilst the organ echoed away. This continued for some weeks. Then the charwoman worked herself up into a frenzy of rage to dare to attack Brangwen, and one day descended on him like a harpy. He wilted away and wanted to break the old beast's neck. Instead he came glowering in fury to the house and turned on Ursula. "'Why, you tiresome little monkey! Can't you even come to church without pulling the place to bits?' His voice was harsh and cat-like. He was blind to the child. She shrank away in childish anguish and dread. What was it? What awful thing was it? The mother turned with her calm, almost superb manner. What has she done, then? Done? She shall go in the church no more, pulling and littering and destroying. The wife slowly rolled her eyes and lowered her eyelids. What has she destroyed, then? He did not know. I've just had Mrs. Wilkinson at me, he cried, with a list of things she's done. Ursula withered under the contempt and anger of the she, as he spoke of her. "'Send Mrs. Wilkinson here to me with a list of the things she's done,' said Anna. "'I am the one to hear that.' "'It's not the things the child has done,' continued the mother, "'that have put you out so much. "'It's because you can't bear being spoken to by that old woman. "'But you haven't the courage to turn on her when she attacks you. "'You bring your rage here.' He relapsed into silence. Ursula knew that he was wrong. In the outside, upper world, he was wrong. Already came over the child the cold sense of the impersonal world. There she knew her mother was right. But still her heart clamoured after her father, for him to be right, in his dark, sensuous underworld. But he was angry, and went his way in blackness and brutal silence again. The child ran about absorbed in life, quiet, full of amusement, she did not notice things, nor changes, nor alterations. One day she would find daisies in the grass, another day apple-blossoms would be sprinkled white on the ground, and she would run among it, for pleasure because it was there. Yet again birds would be pecking at the cherries. Her father would throw cherries down from the tree all round her on the garden, then the fields were full of hay. She did not remember what had been nor what would be. The outside things were there each day. She was always herself, the world outside was accidental. Even her mother was accidental to her, a condition that happened to endure. Only her father occupied any permanent position in the childish consciousness. When he came back she remembered vaguely how he had gone away, 
When he went away she knew vaguely that she must wait for his coming back. Whereas her mother, returning from an outing, merely became present, there was no reason for connecting her with some previous departure. The return or the departure of the father was the one event which the child remembered. When he came something woke up in her, some yearning. She knew when he was out of joint or irritable or tired, then she was uneasy, she could not rest. When he was in the house the child felt full and warm, rich like a creature in the sunshine. When he was gone she was vague, forgetful. When he scolded her even, she was often more aware of him than of herself. He was her strength and her greater self. Ursula was three years old when another baby girl was born. Then the two small sisters were much together, Gudrun and Ursula. Gudrun was a quiet child who played for hours alone, absorbed in her fancies. She was brown-haired, fair-skinned, strangely placid, almost passive. Yet her will was indomitable, once set. From the first she followed Ursula's lead, yet she was a thing to herself, so that to watch the two together was strange. They were like two young animals playing together, but not taking real notice of each other. Gudrun was the mother's favourite, except that Anna always lived in her latest baby. The burden of so many lives depending on him wore the youth down. He had his work in the office, which was done purely by effort of will. He had his barren passion for the church. He had three young children. Also at this time his health was not good. So he was haggard and irritable, often a pest in the house. Then he was told to go to his woodwork, or to the church. Between him and the little Ursula there came into being a strange alliance. They were aware of each other. He knew the child was always on his side, but in his consciousness he counted it for nothing. She was always for him, he took it for granted, yet his life was based on her, even whilst she was a tiny child, on her support and her accord. Anna continued in her violent trance of motherhood, always busy, often harassed, but always contained in her trance of motherhood. She seemed to exist in her own violent fruitfulness and it was as if the sun shone tropically on her. Her colour was bright, her eyes full of a fecund gloom, her brown hair tumbled loosely over her ears. She had a look of richness. No responsibility, no sense of duty troubled her. The outside public life was less than nothing to her, really. Whereas when, at twenty-six, he found himself father of four children, with a wife who lived intrinsically like the ruddiest lilies of the field, he let the weight of responsibility press on him and drag him. It was then that his child Ursula strove to be with him. She was with him, even as a baby of four, when he was irritable and shouted and made the household unhappy. She suffered from his shouting, but somehow it was not really him. She wanted it to be over. She wanted to resume her normal connection with him. When he was disagreeable, the child echoed to the crying of some need in him, and she responded blindly. Her heart followed him as if he had some tie with her, and some love which he could not deliver. Her heart followed him persistently in its love. But there was the dim, childish sense of her own smallness and inadequacy, a fatal sense of worthlessness. She could not do anything, she was not enough, she could not be important to him. This knowledge deadened her from the first. Still she set towards him like a quivering needle. All her life was directed by her awareness of him, 
her wakefulness to his being, and she was against her mother. Her father was the dawn wherein her consciousness woke up, but for him she might have gone on like the other children, Gudrun and Teresa and Catherine, one with the flowers and insects and playthings, having no existence apart from the concrete object of her attention. But her father came too near to her. The clasp of his hands and the power of his breast woke her up almost in pain from the transient unconsciousness of childhood. Wide-eyed, unseeing, she was awake before she knew how to see. She was wakened too soon. Too soon the call had come to her, when she was a small baby, and her father held her close to his breast. Her sleep-living heart was beaten into wakefulness by the striving of his bigger heart, by his clasping her to his body for love and for fulfilment, asking as a magnet must always ask. From her the response had struggled dimly, vaguely into being. The children were dressed roughly for the country. When she was little, Ursula pattered about in little wooden clogs, a blue overall over her thick red dress, a red shawl crossed on her breast and tied behind again. So she ran with her father to the garden. The household rose early. He was out digging by six o'clock in the morning. He went to his work at half-past eight, and Ursula was usually in the garden with him, though not near at hand. At Easter time one year she helped him to set potatoes. It was the first time she had ever helped him. The occasion remained as a picture, one of her earliest memories. They had gone out soon after dawn. A cold wind was blowing. He had his old trousers tucked into his boots. He wore no coat nor waistcoat. His shirt sleeves fluttered in the wind. His face was ruddy and intent, in a kind of sleep. When he was at work he neither heard nor saw. A long, thin man, looking still a youth, with a line of black moustache above his thick mouth, and his fine hair blown on his forehead. He worked away at the earth in the grey first light, alone. His solitariness drew the child like a spell. The wind came chill over the dark green fields. Ursula ran up and watched him push the setting peg in at one side of his ready earth, stride across and push it in the other side, pulling the line taut and clear upon the clods intervening. Then, with a sharp cutting noise, the bright spade came towards her, cutting a grip into the new, soft earth. He struck his spade upright and straightened himself. "'Do you want to help me?' he said. She looked up at him from out of her little woollen bonnet. "'Aye,' he said, "'you can put some taters in for me. Look, like that. These little sprits standing up, so much apart, you see.' And stooping down, he quickly, surely placed the spritted potatoes in the soft grip, where they rested, separate and pathetic, on the heavy, cold earth. He gave her a little basket of potatoes, and strode himself to the other end of the line. She saw him stooping, working towards her. She was excited and unused. She put in one potato, then rearranged it, to make it sit nicely. Some of the sprits were broken, and she was afraid. The responsibility excited her, like a string tying her up. She could not help looking with dread at the string buried under the heaped-back soil. Her father was working nearer, stooping, working nearer. She was overcome by her responsibility. She put potatoes quickly into the cold earth. He came near. Not so close, he said, stooping over her potatoes, taking some out and rearranging the others. 
She stood by with the painful, terrified helplessness of childhood. He was so unseeing and confident, she wanted to do the thing, and yet she could not. She stood by looking on, her little blue overall fluttering in the wind, the red woollen ends of her shawl blowing gustily. Then he went down the row, relentlessly, turning the potatoes in with his sharp spade-cuts. He took no notice of her, only worked on. He had another world from hers. She stood helplessly stranded on his world. He continued his work. She knew she could not help him. A little bit forlorn, at last she turned away, and ran down the garden, away from him, as fast as she could go away from him, to forget him and his work. He missed her presence, her face in her red woollen bonnet, her blue overall fluttering. She ran to where a little water ran trickling between grass and stones. That she loved. When he came by, he said to her, "'You didn't help me much.' The child looked at him dumbly. Already her heart was heavy because of her own disappointment. Her mouth was dumb and pathetic. But he did not notice. He went his way. And she played on, because of her disappointment, persisting even the more in her play. She dreaded work, because she could not do it as he did it. She was conscious of the great breach between them. She knew she had no power. The grown-up power to work deliberately was a mystery to her. He would smash into her sensitive child's world destructively. Her mother was lenient, careless. The children played about as they would all day. Ursula was thoughtless. Why should she remember things? If across the garden she saw the hedge had budded, and if she wanted these greeny-pink tiny buds for bread and cheese to play at tea-party with, over she went for them. Then suddenly, perhaps the next day, her soul would almost start out of her body as her father turned on her, shouting, "'Who's been trampling and dancing across where I've just sowed seed? I know it's you, nuisance. Can you find nowhere else to walk but just over my seed-beds? But it's like you, that is, no heed but to follow your own greedy nose.' It had shocked him in his intent world to see the zigzagging lines of deep little footprints across his work. The child was infinitely more shocked. Her vulnerable little soul was flayed and trampled. Why were the footprints there? She had not wanted to make them. She stood dazzled with pain and shame and unreality. Her soul, her consciousness seemed to die away. She became shut off and senseless, a little fixed creature whose soul had gone hard and unresponsive. The sense of her own unreality hardened her like a frost, she cared no longer. And the sight of her face, shut and superior with self-asserting indifference, made a flame of rage go over him. He wanted to break her. "'I'll break your obstinate little face,' he said, through shut teeth, lifting his hand. The child did not alter in the least. The look of indifference, complete glancing indifference, as if nothing but herself existed to her, remained fixed. Yet far away in her, the sobs were tearing her soul, and when he had gone she would go and creep under the parlour sofa, and lie clinched in the silent, hidden misery of childhood. When she crawled out after an hour or so, she went rather stiffly to play. She willed to forget. She cut off her childish soul from memory, so that the pain and the insult should not be real. She asserted herself only. There was not nothing in the world but her own self. So very soon she came to believe in the outward malevolence that was against her, 
and very early she learned that even her adored father was part of this malevolence, and very early she learned to harden her soul in resistance and denial of all that was outside her, harden herself upon her own being. She never felt sorry for what she had done. She never forgave those who had made her guilty. If he had said to her, Why, Ursula, did you trample my carefully made bed? That would have hurt her to the quick, and she would have done anything for him. But she was always tormented by the unreality of outside things. The earth was to walk on. Why must she avoid a certain patch just because it was called a seed-bed? It was the earth to walk on. This was her instinctive assumption, and when he bullied her she became hard, cut herself off from all connection, lived in the little separate world of her own violent will. As she grew older, five, six, seven, the connection between her and her father was even stronger. Yet it was always straining to break. She was always relapsing on her own violent will into her own separate world of herself. This made him grind his teeth with bitterness, for he still wanted her. But she could harden herself into her own self's universe, impregnable. He was very fond of swimming, and in warm weather would take her down to the canal, to a silent place, or to a big pond or reservoir to bathe. He would take her on his back as he went swimming, and she clung close, feeling his strong movement under her, so strong as if it would uphold all the world. Then he taught her to swim. She was a fearless little thing, when he dared her, and he had a curious craving to frighten her, to see what she would do with him. He said, would she ride on his back whilst he jumped off the canal bridge down into the water beneath? She would. He loved to feel the naked child clinging on to his shoulders. There was a curious fight between their two wills. He mounted the parapet of the canal bridge. The water was a long way down. But the child had a deliberate will set upon his. She held herself fixed to him. He leapt and down they went. The crash of the water as they went under struck through the child's small body with a sort of unconsciousness, but she remained fixed, and when they came up again, and when they went to the bank, and when they sat on the grass side by side, he laughed and said it was fine, and the dark dilated eyes of the child looked at him wonderingly, darkly, wondering from the shock, yet reserved and unfathomable, so he laughed almost with a sob. End of chapter 8, part 1 Read by Tony Foster